we will be reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 through 14. That's page 556, if you want to follow along in the Bible there in your seats. And though it's not listed, I'm also going to turn over and read verses 1 through 6 of chapter 9. That won't be hard for you to find if you can find chapter 7. Last week, we started a new series, Further Up and Further In, using that phrase from the great Christian author C.S. Lewis, as we start this series on wisdom. We talked about the why of wisdom last week. And so in keeping with that theme, Further Up and Further In, we're going to go deep this morning at least in terms of topics, we're going to be looking at death. And we're going to be looking at it from a starting place of the book of Ecclesiastes. While Proverbs gives us wisdom in a a very idealized form, in a formulaic form, Ecclesiastes wrestles with wisdom in the real world in which we live, where there's pain, where there's vanity, where there's death. And so while our passage this morning is uh, not going to be exposited in terms of I'm not going to preach just from chapter 7, we're going to use this theme and this passage as a leaping out point from which to examine the wisdom that God's Word has to say about this topic. So let's now read and hear as the Spirit attends the reading of His Word, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, 1 through 14, and then chapter 9, verse 1 through 6. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for another lot, for anger lodges in the hearts of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of the wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Then chapter 9, verse 1 through 6. But this, all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward. 
for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray that the Lord would give us understanding. Gracious God and Father, we have heard your word read aloud. Would your word read us? Would it expose our sin and our ignorance, our deficiencies, Lord, so that we can come to you for the instruction, for the empowering, for the renewal that only you are capable of? Lord, as we consider your word, would we hear it afresh, anew? And Lord, with all that I say to teach your word, be pleasing to you and helpful to your people, and all that falls short would fade away. This is my prayer. This is our prayer. In the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Around the world, there is a certain group of people that spends time in graveyards every week. Every week, they walk through graveyards, sometimes more than once a week. This group of people, they're known as Christians. Because despite the fact that it's fallen out of favor and practice in our own nation throughout the world, churches are surrounded by graveyards. And in order to walk into the place where the hope of the gospel, where the message of resurrection and life is offered, one must first pass by those who have preceded them into death. A constant reminder of death. Now, there are many reasons for the change in our own practice, different laws, different standards, but that only coheres with our culture's increased distancing from death. Graveyards are set off to the side and neat places where we can go only if we want to commune with those who have gone before. Less and less of us live on farms where birth and life and death are part of the yearly cycle. More and more, those who are sick are treated in hospitals. Those who are dying in retirement and nursing homes, so that the dying are much less often among us and before us. Death is no less present, but it is much less before our eyes and on our minds. And while many might feel more comfortable with that, because death is uncomfortable, because death is painful, because death is sad, is it good for us? That the reality of death, the contemplation of death, is so far less before us. Does avoiding the subject of death, does not thinking about it, does not encountering the dying help us or hurt us? The wisdom of Scripture is not morbid. It does not exalt in death. It does not delight in its consideration But the wisdom of Scripture calls us to consider our death and the reality of death around us. 
Some of you, if you are to go to a fine art gallery, will see pictures of those from the medieval and the early Renaissance with Christian thinkers exploring the world, and often you will see upon their desk a skull. Not just because they are interested in the anatomy of the human body, but because for those who are to be true Christian thinkers, to be wise men understanding God's world, they needed to consider the reality of death. There's an old Latin saying used by many Christians, memento mori, remember your death. If we are to live life well in God's world, in God's ways, if we are to be wise, then we need to heed the lessons that death comes with. We need to consider, think, remember, spend time around death. If you read the book of Ecclesiastes, the the prospect of death, the reality of death, the unease of aging uh, permeates this passage, this, this book, that attends with Proverbs as we are meant to live life well. And verse 4 strikes us, it says, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. How are the wise comfortable with, familiar with death? And what does that mean for us? So this morning we're going to consider some of the lessons, not all of the lessons, but some of the lessons that considering death offer us as we seek to be wise in God's ways, in God's worlds. First, as we look at this passage, we see that death reminds us, that death teaches us that suffering is real. That suffering is real. Verse 2 says it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. And verse 4 then uses similar language in chapter 7. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. House of mourning is a place where people are grieving, where people are mourning a loved one. It is a place where death has left its mark. And whether literally in terms of actually going to funerals to be with people who are mourning the loss of a loved ones, or figuratively considering the reality of death and loss, Ecclesiastes commends the wisdom of our hearts, of our recollections, of our thoughts being in the house of mourning. And part of the way it does that is contrasting it with the house of feasting or merriment. And again, let's be clear, this is about wisdom, not obedience. God's word makes it clear that there are times where we, it is not only good to celebrate, but we are commanded to celebrate. So this, the point of this is not mourning good, celebrating bad but it is a comparative for the sake of greater wisdom. The point is that when we are confronted with mourning, when we are confronted with grief, when there is loss and suffering presented to us from death, we live with the reality that the world is not just merriment, that it's not just joy. The pursuit of entertainment, the pursuit of the house of mirth, Parties and laughter often can shield us or numb us or distract us from the reality of suffering within ourselves and around us. But spending time in the house of mourning confronts us with the truth that those around us suffer. 
And so contemplation of death, facing up to it, being present with others, going through it, resensitizes us to the fact that the world is full of suffering. That suffering is normal, not good, but a very real part of life in a broken world. And when we consider that wisdom is how to live life in this world well for God, then we need to be confronted with the reality of suffering, ours and others, and the consideration of death helps us this. Last week, as we began to look at the why of wisdom from the opening chapter of Proverbs, one of the things we saw about wisdom is that God gives us wisdom not only for ourselves, that we might navigate this world, but that we might know how to bless others. That through wise and righteous living, wisdom allows us to establish healthy patterns and just patterns that benefit and care for others. This entails wisdom that helps us avoid unnecessary suffering. Wisdom says there is suffering. If you make mistakes, if you are foolish, if you scorn the truth, you invite suffering and destruction and hurt upon yourself. We cannot just go freely, naively, foolishly into the world. And so when we consider death and the reality of suffering, it invites us to wisdom that we might avoid it. But also includes the alleviation of suffering by applying knowledge and wisdom to heal, to comfort, to reform, to enact justice. Part of the reason that the, the wisdom literature that God gives us includes the book of Job is because we are so very often unacquainted with grief and sorrow to that extent. And when you read the book of Job as... As the friends of Job confront the deep and profound suffering, suffering marked by a lot of death around Job, we see that there are a lot of bad answers, a lot of bad responses to suffering. How can we learn wisdom? How can we learn to apply wisdom if we avoid the topics of deepest pain and fear like death? It would be like having a doctor or a nurse that would seek to heal you, to apply medication, to perform surgery upon you who is uncomfortable with the sight of blood. How can they get close enough to healing if the very source of the ailment is something that they can't stand? We who seek to be wise in God's world may never be comfortable with death but we will see how attending to the reality of death helps us to live wisely. It attunes us to the fact that when we suffer, we often think it's unnatural. And it's right. Suffering is not natural to the world as God made it, but it is normal under a world polluted by sin. Wisdom, therefore, pushes against our temptation to withdraw when we suffer. We can think often, well, suffering is weird. People are happy. They're celebrating. They have shiny cars. They're going on great vacations. Life is full of joy and excitement and a lack of suffering. I must be weird if I'm hurting. I must be alone if I'm in pain. And then we don't avail ourselves of the help that is available to us from God's word or from God's people. 
Wisdom in considering death and the suffering that it points to also helps us look at people and not assume that everything is okay. That if we are aware of the pervasiveness of death which touches everyone, we are sensitized to the suffering of all people, whether it is apparent or it's hidden. That those around us are walking through unjust, violent, painful, saddening circumstances often below the surface. And if we are content to just look at the surface, to just hear the laughter, to just go to the places of feasting, we will be tempted to walk past those who are suffering. Yet this was not the example of our Savior, who came in the world to die, to teach, to live, but to die. And knowing that he was going to an unjust, violent, painful death, walked in and among the suffering, hurting and burdened by sin in order to bring healing, comfort, and forgiveness. The wise consider death that we might learn the lesson of the reality of suffering around us so that we can be like our Savior who sees those are hurting and offer, offer comfort and help so that we can obey God's word in Romans twelve fifteen to weep with those who weep. Death teaches us the reality of suffering. It also teaches us the truth that sin destroys. As chapter 9 reflects on the pervasiveness of death, the fact that it comes for all, it reflects on one thing that unites the various people. Look at verse 3 in chapter 9. It's described all types of people who eventually suffer death. But then verse 3 says, Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. What unites these various people who end up in the same place is that their hearts are touched by evil. When we look at death, when we spend time around it and confront the reality, it often leads us to ask why. This is often one of the first questions when someone close to us dies is why, especially when it looms up unexpected in our lives. Just this week, someone was, was sharing the story of, of a man who he knew who has worked his life very hard, worked hard, and the day after he retired, on the first day of retirement, he suffered a catastrophic heart attack. Last I heard, that man was still alive, but those around him were asking why. How could it be that this man who works his whole life, who's ready to retire, would suddenly face the prospect of death? It seems unfair. It seems that you should work and you should enjoy it, that we should build and we should sustain but when death is faced, we must face the question, why? Which leads us to the answer of Scripture, which is simply sin. Evil in the hearts of the children of man is the root of the suffering and destruction of death. It was the promised result of disobedience when God commanded Adam and Eve not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Romans 6.23 answers the question, the wages of sin is death. Now we'll come back to the remedy to sin and death in a few minutes. But in considering the answer to the question, why death? 
causes us to consider the rest of the effects of sin. Sometimes when we look at Scripture and the Bible's teaching and what God commands for us, we as Christians can, can deal with the reality, well, well God, God is displeased with sin. God doesn't like it. But it's good news that Jesus forgives us of our sins. And so while, while it's bad that we sin, we're, we're, we're glad that God can save us and forgive us. The Apostle Paul has to deal with this question. Can we sin more that grace might abound all the more? I mean, what's the big deal? If God promises to cover our sin with his grace, what's the big deal? And sometimes those looking from the outside of Christianity in can, can look at God's commands and his limits upon our lives and say, why does God initiate all these controls? Is he just some small-minded person that wants control of you? That is to disentangle the reality that sin brings death and destruction. Death is the ultimate picture of the present reality that sin destroys. Lying, gossip, slander, they destroy relationships, community, and trust. Lust and pornography tear down living objects of glory made in the image of the triune God into things to be consumed for our satisfaction or leveraged in order to sell or influence others. Greed destroys joy and contentment. Greed can leave, lead us to taking from others beyond what is due to try to get the most for ourselves and leave less for others, can turn God's world that he has made for his glory into something to be exploited, left polluted to rot, instead of something to steward according to the fruitfulness that God promised. When we consider death, it causes us to ask why. And it points us to sin and therefore to examine how we contribute to destruction and instead to seek to obey God, to glorify Him, to love our neighbor well, to avoid the destruction wrought by sin. This is why chapter 7 can say that the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. It's not that the wise don't die, but the wise who know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge can avoid the most destructive patterns of sin because we see that the suffering in this world which comes and is pointed to in death, the cause of death, sin, destroys not just our bodies at the end but our lives now. And so sin teaches us, the or death points to the reality of suffering, to the destructive force of sin, and to the uncomfortable reality that humans have limits. Look with me at verse 2 of chapter 7. It says this, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Whatever our background, whoever we are, we all share the same end in death. Death is the great leveler. Whatever power, whatever influence, whatever fame, intellect, and wealth we have, and whatever comes with those things, they eventually find their limits at death. 
Wisdom may itself prolong life and cause us to avoid some of the worst calamities, as verse 12 points to. But in the end, all humanity, the wise and the rich and the powerful, die. Just like the foolish, just like the poor and the powerless. Death helps us in wisdom because wisdom is not just about avoiding pain and attending to suffering, but part of the wisdom that God grants us from considering death is to be more human and to accept the fact that we are limited, that we are creatures, and to be humbled by that reality. Considering death humbles us because it points to our limits. Humility deals with the reality that we are not self-sufficient, that we have blind spots, that there are gaps in our knowledge and experience. Ultimately, we can't do everything. We are not God. We are not eternal. We are not all-knowing. We are not all-powerful. The Lord is creator, and we are creatures. We need rest. We need others. We need help. We need God. And the intrinsic message that we often experience from our working world, from the advertising world, from the self-help things that we read, is that if we just work harder, if we just are a little bit smarter, if we just allow a little bit more time for technology to progress, we will arrive. We will have it all, all that we want, all that we need. We will get to be the gods of our lives, to be in control. But for all the advertising of pharmaceuticals, healthy living choices, retirement investing planning, we can't spend, we can't invent, we can't save, and we cannot fight our way out of death. Psalm 49, which provided for us our call to worship this morning, says, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice and he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Whatever we think that we can accomplish in this life, we cannot surpass the limit of death. And then that should cause us to then re-examine our lives and what we expect from this life, what we think that we can do on our own, and to ask the question, am I really in control? Am I really enough? Will I ever be able to attain for myself what I think will bring me satisfaction, or do I need something more? The wisdom of considering death is that we can't avoid it. It is coming. And yet we feel that there's supposed to be more. We examine the reality of suffering and death and say, this isn't right. There has to be more. We, we see people who are evil live long lives and righteous short lives. We see people who work hard only to suddenly be snatched out of this life. We say, is this all there is? We want something greater. And death that prompts that question exposes the reality of what Ecclesiastes 3.11 says earlier in the book. Speaking of God, it says also he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. 
It seems that there should be more. It seems that this shouldn't end. It seems that we should be able to enjoy. But it's not within our power to know or to attain. It must be somewhere else. It must be in God. The next lesson, therefore, that death teaches us is that there is hope that is greater than is available to us in this present life. And I'll note that this is a change in the order of the outline if you're following along. But considering death, considering the fact that one day walks through the beautiful New Hampshire woods, that the enjoyment of good meals, that time with friends and family will come to an end, causes us to say, is this it? There are so many good things. But even the good things are tinged with pain and the reality that we will one day lose them. We have unmet expectations, unrealized dreams, injustices that have yet to be fixed. And maybe it just starts with us with yearning. We just want more. And then we wonder, is more possible? And we begin to search for more. But if we allow death to confront us with the question as if more is possible, it might lead us to hope if we can consider that if we are limited, that if we are sinful, that if there is suffering brought on by our sin, that we need something outside of ourselves. Considering death causes us to ask, is this all we're meant for? Is this all that is available? Is there something greater for us beyond death and God leads us to the answer in his word that there is in him. Considering our death contrasts us with that which is greater. Isaiah chapter 40, this is a prophecy. We don't view it through the lens necessarily of wisdom, but it says something true and consistent with what wisdom says. I'll turn over there and read. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 11 familiar passage to many of you a voice cries a voice says cry and I say what shall I cry all flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field the grass withers the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it surely the people are grass those opening verses confront us with death with the fact that we are coming to an end, that the passing of our lives is swift like that of the grass. Verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. When we consider our limits, when we consider our sin, when we are exposed by death, it asks us to examine the contrast of the power and eternality of God who because he is God gives us a word, a truth, a promise which endures forever. Which leads us to ask, if God does not die, is it then possible for us? And when we look into God's word, when death confronts us with this question, we see that death may be unavoidable, but its power is not inescapable. Psalm 49 which I read from a few minutes ago that caused us to examine the fact that all die, also points to the fact that God will ransom our souls from Sheol. That while no man can ransom his life, while no man can pay the penalty for his own sins, 
and therefore escape the judgment due us, God can and he does. If we consider death and ask what will come for us after, is there something else? We are then open to ask how might the thing that comes after be good? For while the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23 tells us, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And what is that eternal life he offers? It's not just to extend time in this world where there is suffering and destruction and death. A life where we keep having to say goodbye, where we keep having to lose. No, it is a world in which death, suffering, and sorrow can no longer rob us of the things that we enjoy in this life. Looking to death invites us to look past it to when death itself has died. Revelation 21.4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. If this life in the end can only offer us suffering, loss, and death, for whatever good comes with it, might there be, when we consider our death, the question of, but could there be something more outside of this life? And the answer is yes and amen in God who has sent his son to die for our sins, to ransom us from the power of death so that we could live the gift of eternal life that he offers. Which then points to the last lesson that we're going to look at from death this morning, the ability to live for a purpose beyond ourself and beyond this immediate life. If for those that trust in Jesus, death does not have to be the end, but we can experience the end of death in Jesus, that changes how we live now. Now, that does not mean that we live a life of morbidity. It doesn't mean we live a life of pessimism. It doesn't mean that we live a life of joylessness. Wisdom is not living under the shadow of death with sorrow in our hearts all the time saying, eventually everything is bad now, but one day it'll be better. Now, verse 3 of chapter 7 says this, Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Sadness of face, this is the reaction of our face. This is the way that we respond when there is something sorrowful, something wrong. We are sensitized to the reality. But at the same time, the heart has a deeper reality of what is valuable. When we fully comprehend loss and suffering, when we say this is not the way it's supposed to be, when we number the days that God has given us, it sensitizes us and gives us the permission and ability to respond to what is good. To say, this might be sorrowful right now, but I have something greater, a greater hope. While laughter is so very often a cover for pain, an attempt to fill a hollow ache, we can deal with the reality of sadness in this life because our heart is made full, knowing that there is more. The wisdom of considering death allows us to live life well beyond the self because it points us to what the purpose of this life is. When we read the book of Ecclesiastes, there is a repeated refrain in different forms to eat, to do our work, to enjoy our spouse. Because this life does eventually end in death and it is full of contradictions, it's full of vanity. And yet, Ecclesiastes is not offering nihilism. It's not just saying, eat, drink, and marry before, 
because tomorrow we die. Now, listen to what chapter 3.13 says when it uses this refrain. In considering death, it says this, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, and also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil, because that's all there is, because tomorrow we die, because if we don't get every last morsel out of enjoyment of this life, we have failed. No, it says this, this is God's gift to man. Instead of enjoying this life because it's all that there is, because if we don't have enough wealth, enough fame, enough attention, if we don't accomplish our dreams, then our life is meaningless. Instead, we can enjoy the gifts of this life, our, our loves, our relationships, our work, our food, our drink, because we see that they're not just for us. They're gifts from God by which enjoying them, we are glorifying him. That the enjoyment of this life is not just for us, but for him. Wisdom that considers the limitations of life in light of God doesn't just say, I'm going to suck the marrow out of today, but I'm going to live a life of enjoyment as an act of gratitude that recognizes the goodness of God who we are called to live for. And that part of living for God wisely is to live for others. The last passage other than our main passage that I want to invite you to consider is Luke chapter 12. It is a parable about death. Two men are arguing and one appeals to Jesus to make his brother share a portion of his inheritance with him. And Jesus asks the question, why do you come to me? And then he goes on to share this. Sorry, I went to Mark 12. But Luke 12. He says this in response. Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. The reality that death is coming, the reality that we don't know when that, that comes, causes us to not look at the things that we can have in this life for us, but to see, as Jesus says, that richness towards God looks like looking at that abundance, looking at that wealth that this rich man has as something as he is given the opportunity to share to give to others. This night your soul is required of you and these things you have prepared, whose will they be? Brothers and sisters, death is uncomfortable. Death is painful to think about, to be around. But as God wants us to live well in this world, he invites us to be wise in spending time in the house of mourning. Because there we learn lessons not only for this life, but for the life to come. That living well confronts suffering, wrestles with the reality that sin destroys, 
that we are not strong enough to fix what is broken, and so we need God who can and who has and offers us something far greater than what was available into this life. Because he offers what this life was supposed to be without sin, life everlasting with him. And until we enjoy that life, after death, we can live it now in gratitude for him. When we walk through graveyards, brothers and sisters, whether figuratively or literally, when we are reminded that one day death is coming for us, we can walk among the graves of our brothers and sisters and know that death has not victory. Why else would we surround churches with graves of saints unless we are secure in the knowledge that the message that we offer, the hope that we have in considering death is that for all of its power, for all of its strength, for all of its scariness, that greater is the power and the victory and the hope in Jesus who lived, died, and rose again for us. Let's pray. Gracious God, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Help us to walk in this world aware of death and yet looking to life beyond in Christ Jesus. Hear our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen.